0: So I would suspect that many of us here have had the joy of teaching our kids to say thank you after they get a present. Uh, It can be a process that takes a little while, right? We acted out with particular vigor on birthdays and Christmas and trick-or-treating and when grandparents come over to visit. Those are the ones that stand out in my memory. And I remember feeling like having, every time something would be open, i have to be like, okay, did you say thank you? Did you say thank you? Did you say thank you? It was a little repetitive, probably a little obsessive in, in retrospect. But we do it because it matters. Uh, at the most basic level, saying thank you is socially expected. It's a little bit of, of grease that smooths out the operation of the machine of society, just makes things a little bit smoother. Now, we hope that in time it will turn into an understanding of the value of gratitude and appreciation for gifts and a realization that people don't actually have to give us presents. They're doing it because they love us. We could hope beyond that that if we get that level done that we can get to another level where people learn about a gratitude and just taking joy in the small things so they can learn to be contented. So, as parents, we invest a lot of effort in this very little thing of saying thank you. And there's lots of layers on that on maybe why we try a little too hard. But the point is, it is a good thing to be doing, to learn to say thank you. In fact, learning to say thank you is so important that in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, which Mark read for us earlier... Paul tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Giving thanks in all circumstances. As we approach Thanksgiving, that is going to be our focus this week and next and for me, that's pretty challenging to think about, right? To, to give thanks in all the circumstances, the good ones and the bad ones, and everything in between. And so that's what we're going to talk about, how to deal with that. But because we've only got two Sundays to kind of kind of prep and get ready for the final exam on Thanksgiving, we're really going to talk about the two extremes, the good and the bad. Because if we can say remember to say thank you when things are going really well. And if we can find a way to say thank you when things are going really badly, then I think we have the skill set we need to handle everything in between. So today we're going to look at giving thanks in the good times. And next week we're going to look at giving thanks in the bad times. And I think they're each very, very difficult, but it's for different reasons, and it has to do with our nature as human beings, and we'll dig into that a little bit. And as I've been preparing on my own part, I've been trying to go back and forth. I've been going back and forth. Which one is harder to do, right? Naturally, we would say giving thanks in bad times is hard. But quite honestly, it's not my first instinct when things are going well either. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in the story today. So to explore this importance of giving thanks in the good times, we're going to look at a miracle that Jesus performed. It's on his way to Jerusalem, it's in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. So I'm going to do it in two slides. I might advance the slide, and if so, that's good. If not, you might want to follow along in your Bible. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. These events take place during Jesus' extended final journey to Jerusalem. His journey to the cross. At this point in the trip... He and his disciples have, they're leaving Galilee, which is their home, right? And they're passing along between Galilee and Samaria. And it's important to realize that in those days, Samaritan didn't mean a good person, which is what it's come to mean in our culture. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They viewed them as less than human. They had a lot of reasons for this. Samaria was geographically the remnants of the old northern kingdom of Israel, which had been conquered by the Assyrians about 750 years before that. And the Assyrians had a policy that we would today call ethnic cleansing. When they conquered a territory, they would take most of the people, forcibly move them to other parts of the empire, split them up, a few here, a few here, a few here. And then they would repopulate the territory they conquered by taking people out of the other countries. So the people of Samaria had been relocated from all over the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians did this to make sure there were no ethnically unified nationalist groups large enough to start a rebellion. Well, over the course of the centuries, these newcomers had intermarried with the with the the residents, those who were left behind by the Assyrians. And so by the first century, the Samaritans were an ethnically mixed people, impure in the eyes of the Jews. But beyond just being foreigners, there were serious religious problems that the Jews had with the Samaritans. You see, in the ancient Near East, what you would do if you moved from one country to another, you would do two things. You would bring with you your gods from the country you came from. And then you would adopt the local gods. So it was believed if you moved, your old gods were very tied. Most of their power was in your old country. So you'd bring them with you because you didn't want to offend them. But you also said, well, they're not really gods of this country, so they're not that powerful, so I need to get on the right side of the boss in the new neighborhood. And so the people who moved into Samaria, they accepted Yahweh, but in the same sense of just a pagan idol god, just a guy, a local god. They didn't understand he was the unique god who created the universe. And so they continued to practice their idolatry, and then they mixed that in with what was already a terrible parody of Jewish ritual that was taking place in the northern kingdom for for hundreds of years after the two kingdoms had split. And so to a Jew, the Samaritans were a religious abomination. But they had historical reasons for hating each other, too, as if that was not enough. See, there had been wars between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom for hundreds of years before the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. And then when the Jews came back from their exile, the Samaritans tried hard to prevent them from rebuilding the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And over the centuries, there had been flare-ups of violence. As recently as a little over 100 years before Jesus, a king of the Jewish people had gone out, conquered Samaria, and burned their temple on Mount Gerizim. These people hated each other. They could sort of function at a basic level because they were so close, they had to get over it to some extent. But the contempt and the hatred that we see in the Gospels was real. And it's important to note that Jesus did not share that contempt and that attitude. We should always remember that. But whenever we see Samaritans talked about, the Jews are not speaking in a good way. So as Jesus was traveling between Galilee and Samaria, he entered into a village where he encountered ten lepers who were standing at a proper distance from him. Now, a leper was anybody who had any of a variety of skin diseases that would make them unclean. They were contagious. They were unacceptable to be in ordinary society. Leviticus 13 is very long, and it forbids lepers from living in the villages or in the tents of the people of Israel. So they had to live apart. They were alone. They were unclean. They were sick. They couldn't be with their families. They also, generally speaking, couldn't do business with the clean because it would require contact. So they had no good way to earn a living To buy or to sell or to trade. So, on top of everything else, they were usually deeply impoverished. They were required to wear torn clothes as a symbol of their disease. And whenever they walked around, they had to say, unclean, unclean. They had to walk around announcing their conditions that normal people wouldn't come into contact with them. So, they were outcasts physically, they were outcasts financially. They were humiliated. They were also outcast spiritually because a leper couldn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices. They were unclean. They had no way to participate in the spiritual life of Israel or to reconcile themselves with God. So they had no hope in this life, and they had no hope for the life to come. And so it's in this terrible condition that they cry out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And of course he did. Because there are no outcasts to Jesus. There is no hopelessness where there is Jesus. There is no uncleanness that he cannot clean. And so he gave them a simple instruction, and he tested their faith. And he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. We may not know why he says this, but Leviticus 14 describes the process for being declared clean of leprosy so that you can actually get your life back. And it's relatively straightforward. If you think you're cured, you go to see the priest. The priest examines you. If you're good to go, you go through some rituals of purification You give sacrifices of atonement, and voila, you can participate in society again. And so against that backdrop, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm going to heal you, come on over here. He doesn't go over and touch them as he has with other lepers. Instead, his power is so great that he just tests their faith by saying, go, show yourselves to the priests. He tells them to go to the priests and to take on faith, That by the time they get there, they'll be healed. And the interesting thing is, they went without question. And the text says, and as they went, they were cleansed. So, just like that, in an instant, the best thing that could have ever happened to them happened to them. They were completely healed. They were transformed into ten men with a future, ten men with a place in society, ten men who could be with their families and get right with God. There is nothing better that could have happened to them. This was the best day of their lives. And so nine of the men kept walking because they were so eager to get to the priests and get on with their life. But one man stopped. That man turned around and realized there was something more important than navigating the bureaucracy of resuming normal life. He recognized that the greatest thing that could have ever happened to him had just occurred in his life, and he had done nothing to make it happen. He had done nothing to deserve it or to earn it. It was the hand of God. And so he started praising God with a loud voice. And he came back to Jesus, and he fell on his face at his feet. And Luke says that he gives thanks to Jesus. Now, this word for giving thanks appears 38 times in the New Testament. and In all the other cases, it describes giving thanks to God. And I think this is no exception here. I think he knows exactly what he is doing. He is praising God. He is at The feet of Jesus on his face, thanking him in a way that is reserved for thanking God. I think this Samaritan gets it. Jesus is God. And this man is worshiping Jesus. And who is the man who really appreciated what God did for him? Who is the one who came back to thank Jesus for giving him the greatest gift he could ever imagine? Who's the one who had the insight to realize that Jesus is God, even as, quite often his own disciples don't get it? It's the Samaritan, the person who, to the Jews of that day, would have been viewed as subhuman. That's the one who got it, the one who saw the truth. And so Jesus asked rhetorically, "We're not ten clean? Where are nine? Where are the other nine?" Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? He said 10 people got the greatest gift of their lives and 90% didn't bother to say thank you. Are we that different? And lastly, Jesus says something to him which is translated as, your faith has made you well. But this exact Greek phrase appears several times in the book of Luke, and in several of those other places it is translated, your faith has saved you. And I think that's what's going on here for this man. You see, he experienced something more than the other nine did, because all ten were cleansed. All ten were healed when they obediently went at Jesus' command. But something else happened for this man. See, the interesting thing is the word choice for the cleansing says it happened just like that. It was a thing. It happened. It was done. But for this man, the cleansing and the healing have gone deeper because the words in this final phrase signify something that isn't just momentary, but something that has happened and has lasting impact. Your faith has saved you. This despised leper, this Samaritan, this outcast of outcasts has found salvation through Jesus Christ. And that should be tremendously encouraging to all of us. For everyone who has ever felt like an outcast. Who has ever felt unclean. Because Jesus is there for us if we will accept him it's important to realize that this passage is written in a way that is, that is telling us that our attention isn't supposed to be on the miracle. We should acknowledge that it happened, and it is a miracle. But our attention is to be focused on the response to the miracle. Primarily the response of the one, but to a lesser extent, also the response of the other nine. And so that's what we need to ask ourselves today. What does this story teach us as we live out Paul's command to give thanks in all circumstances. Because I think this story about how one man responded to God's grace on the best day of his life can teach us three things about how we should be thankful in the good times. Specifically, I think it teaches us about God's expectation for our thanksgiving. I think it teaches us about our expression of thanksgiving and about the blessing that comes from thanksgiving. And the first thing we learn from this story is that God has an expectation that we will be thankful for our blessings. Go back to 1 Thessalonians, right? According to verse 18, it is God's will for us that we give thanks in all circumstances. Not God's suggestion, not an interest, not a good idea. God's will for us. To be thankful, And I think that's made clear in Jesus' question, right? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and praise God except this foreigner? I do think, though, it's important that we understand that the cleansing of these ten men was in no way contingent on whether they were thankful or not. You see, God's mercy and grace are never transactional. We never earn them. We never deserve them. When the nine didn't return, Jesus didn't unheal them. And likewise, good things and bad things don't occur in our life because we are or are not sufficiently grateful for them. But that does not change our responsibility to thank God for the good things, to thank him for the blessings. And it doesn't change his expectation that we should show gratitude for his generosity. As Christians, we should be the first to line up to say thank you for the blessings we have. We should be the quickest to give thanks in the good times. Because we should recognize what James said. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every Good gift. Right? There's no, there's no exceptions here. All of our gifts, all of our blessings are from God. There's no asterisk beside the ones that we deserve or that we've earned or that came to us because we're awesome. Because if that were true, if they did come to us because we're awesome, who made us awesome? Every good gift is from God. Now, it's an unfortunate reality that success and comfort and wealth dull our sense of dependence on God. I've said for a long time, I think the greatest threat to the Western church is comfort, success, a feeling we don't have to have God. And when we get into that state, then it's only usually when terrible things happen, like the terrible things in Paris this weekend, that we realize we do not have control over every aspect of our life. And this is something we've been talking about for several weeks now, as James has been covering it. Over the years of accumulated good times, we forget that bad times are even possible. We think that the blessings we enjoy are just the results of working hard and making wise choices and living well and It closes our minds to the work of God and it closes our hearts to those who are less fortunate. We lose our ability to recognize God's grace when it's right in front of our faces. See, our sense of gratitude starts to give way to a sense of entitlement, a sense of self righteousness. And I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus points out specifically that this man is a Samaritan, is a foreigner. Because in those days, it was the Jews who were God's people who should have been the quickest to line up and say thank you. They should have been the ones who could recognize God's work in their lives. But they didn't. Like so many of us today, like so many Christians, those other nine were so excited about getting on with their lives that they couldn't see or take the time to be grateful for God's blessing in their life. Like the cleansed lepers, we have so many things to be thankful for. A lot of our worship songs today have already touched on this. We have a loving God who, who cares for us deeply. No matter our race, no matter our nationality, no matter our gender, or our bank account, or our job, or our education, or our past, or our friends, or our mistakes, or our failures. We have a God who is always with us, and who loves us, and who wants to relate to us. And that alone should keep us busy saying thank you. As believers, we have a living Savior, whose sacrifice gives us eternal life. And we have God's Spirit within us to strengthen, encourage, and guide us at every moment that should keep us busy saying thank you too. So are we the one or are we the nine? God's expectation and will for us is clear and we should give thanks. As we enjoy the good times, and believe me, we we should enjoy the good times. They are blessings here for us to enjoy. But let's be careful to hold on to our understanding that these blessings come from God. And let's be quick to thank him for them. Now, the second lesson I think we can learn from this story is about our expression of thanksgiving. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can be pretty perfunctory in the morning when I'm saying thanks to God for things. I'm sitting here thanking him for the overflowing and overwhelming blessings in my life, but it sounds like I'm reciting a grocery list. Dear Lord, thank you for my wonderful wife, my great kids, a good job, great church, uh, that I don't crash my car, that the cat hasn't died yet. I should be thinking on these things deeply, and instead I'm giving a recitation, like I'm pass, trying to pass a spelling bee or something like that. That is the opposite of what we see in the story today, isn't it? The Samaritan is so grateful for what he has received that he practically shouts praises at the top of his lungs. And he humbles himself by falling on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him. And that's really more than just giving thanks, isn't it? It's worship. I am convinced that genuine, heartfelt thanksgiving is worship. The leper was worshiping Jesus as God, who had restored him to life. He was thanking him for his mighty work. He was sharing the good news with anyone who was in earshot. And his attitude of thankfulness changed him more than the original miracle did. I think what we see here is that when we are genuinely thankful and thoughtful, when we give our thanks... When we think about him, and we think about what he has done for us, it leads us to worship him. Whether we're at home, or in our car, or at work, or at school, or in church. As we express gratitude for the gifts that we receive, and we really think about them, not just recite them, we start to think about the giver. And we think about how much we don't deserve the very best gifts that he has given us. But he gave them to us anyway. And we think about our infinitely good, infinitely wise, infinitely loving Father in heaven. We think about his perfect holiness and righteousness and justice, and yet we remember his endless mercy and grace. And he gives gifts to people like us. Even in the midst of our sin and self-centeredness. A third lesson I think we can learn from the leper's experience is the blessing that comes from thanksgiving. This leper didn't have to turn around. He could have gone on with the other nine. He didn't have to come back. If he'd wanted to, he could have just kept going but said some quick prayers as he was walking of thanksgiving. And in that, he would have sounded pretty much like I do on the average day. But that's not what he did. He was so moved by the power and presence and work of God in his life that he came back and threw himself at the feet of Jesus. He humbled himself there. And for that, he was blessed at an entirely different and deeper level than the other nine were. At a deeper level than he had been to that moment. We read recently in James 4, God, gives, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I think that's exactly what we see here. right? Jesus gives grace to this foreigner who has humbled himself at his feet. Your faith has saved you. From an attitude of humble thanksgiving and gratitude, this Samaritan has found salvation while God's people were consistently rejecting Jesus. His relationship with God grew through Jesus, grew infinitely richer because he was thankful for the blessings he had received. He was thankful for the best things in his life. And I think what we learn is that a richer relationship with Christ awaits us when we get over ourselves and love and appreciate the gifts we receive and the giver who gives them, when we thank God for our blessings. As we better understand and appreciate those blessings, which naturally leads us to realize we don't deserve them, then we going to draw nearer to God. We're drawn nearer to him with an attitude of increasing love and increasing desire to be in his presence. And the great part is he yearns for that. He welcomes that. When we recognize that even if our gifts and our talents are the reason that we achieve this blessing, but we realize we didn't give ourselves these gifts and talents, then our attention is drawn to the maker who did. And our amazement and our appreciation for the maker only grows and deepens as we give thanks for what he has made. Amazing doors of relationship open up with God when we choose to be the one rather than the nine. When we throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus in gratitude. And so as we head out into the world this week, I would challenge everyone to think about what are we thankful for? And more broadly, what should we be thankful for? Take some time this week to think about all these blessings. To think about all that is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy in your life. And give thanks for it. Let's pray.